Last week, we began looking at the letter of James. We noticed that James was the brother of Jesus. But by the time he writes this letter, his biological connection to Jesus is not what's significant to him. What is significant is that Jesus has become James's Lord and Savior. Through meeting the risen Jesus, James has come to put his faith in him. He has become one of Jesus' people. And now he writes to encourage his brothers and sisters in the family of God. And in this letter, James writes about living faith, faith that makes a difference in our lives. And last week, as we looked at just the first eight verses of this, we saw that James likes to put things in striking ways. He makes statements that challenge the way we think about things. In just the second verse of this letter, he told us to consider it pure joy when we face trials. That is certainly a challenge to the way we think. And his point was not that trials themselves are pure joy, but that we're able to find joy in the fact that trials can produce good things in us. They can lead us forward towards Christ-likeness. And this morning, as we continue in chapter 1, we again find James challenging the way we think. He talks this morning about perfect gifts. We're going to pick up in chapter 1, verse 9, and we'll read down to verse 18. And if you're using a church Bible, it's page 1213, or in the larger print Bibles, 1880. James 1, verse 9. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower, for the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. This is God's word. And here, James describes two 
perfect gifts which God gives to his people. Wisdom and hope. First in verses 9 to 12, wisdom for the trials of poverty and wealth. These verses flow right on from what we looked at last week. A moment ago, we remembered how James spoke about facing trials. And also in our passage last week, he encouraged us to ask God for wisdom in the midst of our trials. Because we can't always see how trials might make us more Christ-like. And often, we don't know how best to respond to trials. So, James said in chapter 1, verse 5, ask God for wisdom and he'll give it to you. He'll help you think wisely about your trial. He'll help you respond wisely to it. And straight away, here in our passage this morning, James gives us an example of that. Wisdom for the trials of poverty and wealth. Now, of course, our first reaction is, well, how on earth is wealth a trial? We will get to that, but first look at the more obvious trial poverty. In verse 9, James says, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. The word translated believers here is literally the brother. So, James is speaking about men or women who belong to the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And here he's talking to those believers in Jesus who live in humble circumstances. They are low down on society's ladder. Now, poverty is going to look different depending on where you live in the world. To be a poor person in Mumbai or in Kabul is going to look different from being a poor person in Pelsol or Blockswitch. But James is not so much thinking here about what your poverty looks like. He's thinking about how other people look at you because of your poverty. So, if your circumstances are humble compared to those around you, if you have less than those people in terms of income and stuff, or if your stuff is less expensive and therefore less impressive than their stuff, how do those people look at you? Well, they look down on you. They view you as if you're failing at life because your trainers aren't as good or your salary's not as big or your car's not as flashy or your house isn't as stylish. Now, we would probably like to think that kind of attitude ended in primary school, but we all know it's a big thing for adults as well. Looking at those who have less and thinking they're not succeeding at life because they don't have the right things or they can't go on the right kind of holidays. And in reaction to that, if we're in more humble circumstances than those around us, we can make it our aim to get ourselves in a position to have better trainers and a bigger salary, a flashier car, a more stylish house and more impressive holidays. And the media is all about encouraging us to have that aim in life. Everywhere we turn, we're bombarded with adverts showing us all the impressive stuff that we really actually need. 
according to the adverts. Encouraging us to set our hearts on improving our humble circumstances. Turning them into impressive circumstances. So that we can take pride in our stuff instead of being ashamed of it. And what that means is, if we have less than those around us, we are facing a trial. Because we can feel their scorn. We know they look at us and think that we're behind and that we're unsuccessful at life. We know they consider themselves to be above us. How are we going to respond to that trial? Are we going to try and impress society by gaining the stuff society finds impressive? Are we going to look to that for our sense of worth? Are we going to take pride in inching our way up the ladder of stuff? That is one way to respond to the trial of humble circumstances. And to most people, it's the obvious way to respond. But James challenges God's people to choose a different response. In verse 9, he says, Those of us in humble circumstances should take pride in our high position. What high position? Well, it's obviously not anything this world would recognize as high. James is speaking to people who have little or no position as far as this world's concerned. The high position he's talking about is our high position in the eyes of God. Because there is another much more significant reality than the one people around us can see. When we put our trust in Jesus Christ, we become sons and daughters of the living God. We become co-heirs with Jesus himself. Heirs to all the eternal riches of heaven. And in God's eyes, we are already seated with Jesus in the heavenly realms. That's where we belong. Our standing with God and our access to God is that secure. It's that authentic. And so James says, if those around you look down on you, don't get sucked into playing the same game as them. Don't make it your goal to impress them by keeping up with them. Forget that and take pride in your high position with Almighty God. Find your sense of worth in what you're worth to God. Not on what your neighbors think of your garden or what people in school think of your phone. And maybe as we say these things, you're already beginning to see how it is that wealth can be a trial. And that's what James turns to in verse 10. The rich should take pride in their humiliation. Obviously, this is not about humiliation in the eyes of the world. If you're wealthy by the standards of those around you, then as far as they're concerned, you've made it. You've done well in life. You're a successful person. And you ought to be congratulating yourself, feeling quite proud of yourself. 
You ought to look at your bank balance and your sweet car and the rest of your nice things and feel pretty satisfied with yourself. You have a right to feel you're a cut above those who don't have those things. Now, of course, for a Christian, it wouldn't be socially acceptable to say that sort of thing. But it's hard not to think it. It seems so natural to think it. But James says, instead of that, if you're well off, take pride in your humiliation. And he means humiliation in the eyes of God. Because the reality is, all the stuff you have that's so impressive to human eyes, it doesn't mean a thing in the eyes of God. To him, you're not a well-dressed success story. You're a naked charity case. You have nothing at all that would make God give you a second glance. What does he care about your investment portfolio? What does he care about your new conservatory? He is not impressed by where you go on holiday. He's not impressed by where you bought your jacket or how much you paid for it. In fact, look how James describes all of this stuff that the world puts so much store by. At the end of verse 10, it will all pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. So James says, your wealth has not made your life secure. One day you will stop breathing just like everybody else. No matter how wealthy you are, you stand before God utterly and completely dependent on his grace. It's by his grace that you draw your next breath. And it's by his grace that you'll be received into his presence one day as his dearly loved son or daughter. Welcomed not because of your worldly success. That is no more significant than a heap of grass. You will be welcomed by God the Father because of his son's sacrifice on the cross. Your only hope is the good news, the gospel, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Rich with the gift of salvation. Now can you see why wealth is a trial for God's people? Because it encourages us, it lures us to base our sense of worth on our wealth instead of on God's gracious love. When we're surrounded by the rewards of success, it takes a conscious effort to recognize our actual spiritual humiliation and bankruptcy. It takes conscious consideration to see that our wealth is as insubstantial as a wild flower. 
and then to take pride in the sheer charity of God's mercy and acceptance of us. In that sense, wealth really is a trial for God's people. And whether we're currently facing the trial of wealth or of poverty, James gives us the wisdom we need in this passage. He directs us to keep our focus on true eternal riches. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. How do we persevere under the trials of wealth or poverty? We keep our focus on true eternal riches. That's what James means by the crown of life. A writer called Sam, Sam Albury sums up the wisdom James has given us in these verses. He says, The poor are to remember their high position. They have been exalted by the gospel. The rich are to remember their low position. They have been humbled by the gospel. The poor need to reflect on the certainty of heaven. The rich on the transience of earth. That is God's wisdom. It's perfect wisdom. God has given us a wonderful gift by supplying us with that wisdom. But we all know remembering that reality and focusing on that truth is easier said than done. It's much more natural for us to focus on the transient riches that we either have or don't have here and now. It's more natural for us to care about our standing here on earth than our standing in heaven. Living by God's wisdom is a struggle for us because our desires are bent out of shape. They bend away from God's wisdom instead of towards it. But James has help for us. He points us to the second perfect gift from God. Along with wisdom, we have hope for the battle with our deadly desires. And verses 13 to 15 are here to show us that our desires are deadly. Verse 13 says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. In verses 13 and 14, there's a play on words with the word tempt. It's actually the same Greek word that was translated trial in the earlier verses. And we know that God allows or sends trials. And he allows or sends them because they can lead us to maturity, to Christ-likeness. So we know that God has a good purpose in sending or allowing the trial, whatever it is. But what you and I must not do 
is think God is behind the temptation that comes along with the trial. That's what James is getting at. So think of the examples we just looked at. Trials of poverty or wealth. Those circumstances are given to us by God. And through them, we can grow in maturity. But we saw, along with those circumstances come temptations. If we have less than others, the temptation is to play the game of trying to get what others have. And if we're well off, the temptation is to think we're the bee's knees. That what we have makes us better than others. Now, what we mustn't do is think that just because God sent the circumstances, he must be sending the temptation as well. Like he's pushing us towards sin and then taking some sort of weird pleasure in seeing whether we can resist the sin. Nor when we fall into sin can we make the excuse that it's God's fault. I'm greedy because he didn't give me enough to begin with. Poverty makes you desperate for more. We might be tempted to say that, or it's God's fault that I'm so tied up in my wealth. He shouldn't have given me so much if he didn't want me to be proud of it and attached to it. James says, no, God sent or allowed the trial but he did not send the temptation that goes with the trial. That comes from your own deadly desires. What about a totally different example? It's God's fault, we might be tempted to say, that I'm involved in sexual immorality. He's the one who gave me these sexual drives. How can he cry foul when I give in to them? Or, God took away my loved one. It's his fault that I'm angry with him. What did he expect when he did that to me? Jim says, it is just not true that God tempts us to sin. In verse 13, for God cannot be tempted by evil. In other words, evil has no attraction for God. None at all. So it is, it is impossible that he would try to lead you and me into evil. Here's the source of evil, James says. It comes from our own desires. Deep down in our heart of hearts, we want things that are evil. When it comes to wealth and success, we want other people to be in awe of us. We want them to think we're superior because of what we earn or how far we've climbed the ladder of success. We want the feeling of being superior, looking down on others from our high position. When it comes to sex, we don't want God to set the limits on what we do with our bodies. We want to be God over our body. And we want to be God over the lives of our loved ones. We don't want God himself to be the one who gives and takes away. Or at least we want him to do it when we say so. 
and not before. The point is, yes, God sends the circumstances of our lives, but those circumstances do not cause us to sin. The sin is all our own work. And as James says in verse 15, sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Our desires are deadly. And so you and I face a battle. God has given us the perfect gift of his wisdom. Living by that wisdom leads us to wholeness and Christ-likeness. But our hearts lead us in a different direction. Our desires tempt us to ignore God's wisdom. And that leads to destruction. But these verses are not here to make us despair. They're here to give us hope for the battle with our deadly desires. And verse 16 is a verse that does double duty in this passage. It says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. And when I say that does double duty, I mean it says to us, first of all, don't be deceived about your own heart and how bent out of shape it really is. Don't kid yourself. And at the same time, don't be deceived about God's goodness. His goodness to you as you fight to turn from your deadly desires and live by his wisdom. Don't think God has abandoned you. There is hope for God's people because as bent out of shape as our hearts are, God has begun his new creation work in us. Look at verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. In verse 17, the heavenly lights are the sun, moon, and stars. And God is the father of those because he is the creator. He gave us the good and perfect gift of this created world that we live in. But he is not like creation because he's not part of its changeability. In the rare occasions each summer in this country when the weather's warm enough to sit outside in the, in the sun, you'll have noticed that very often when you get out there in the sun, it only takes a few moments before your nice spot in the sun becomes a cold spot in the shade. Things move around. Or if you prefer the shade to begin with, it's not long before you find yourself in the rays of the sun that you were trying to avoid. Shifting shadows. And shifting shadows are just a tiny example of the changeability we live with every day on this earth. Everything changes. But James's point is that God alone doesn't change. His commitment to giving good gifts to his children doesn't change. And just as he gave us this creation to thrive in, he has begun a new work of creation. 
and he has begun it in us. That's what verse 18 means when it calls us first fruits. We are the beginning of a work that will one day renew all of creation, producing a new heaven and earth. So what exactly has God done in us? Well, here and in other places in the New Testament, it's described as a new birth. Our first birth was when we emerged from our mother's womb. After that birth, we began a life of slavery to our deadly desires. A life that is characterized by sin and ends in eternal death. But in his great love and mercy, God has given us new birth into a life where he is king of our hearts. Deadly desires don't rule anymore. Sin is not normal anymore. And our destiny is not destruction, it's Christ-likeness. That is our destiny. We're not there yet. We still have to grow up. And that involves learning to trust God's wisdom instead of our own. Growing up involves learning to focus on eternal riches instead of the momentary riches everybody else chases after. Growing up involves learning to say no to the deadly desires that still hang around our hearts. All of us have a long way to go. Our calling in the remainder of this life is to pursue maturity. But one simple truth means that we face those months or years with hope instead of facing them with despair. The simple truth that gives hope is the truth that God has begun his new creation work in us. We have been born again. We have entered into a new life. And verse 18 says that new birth came about through the word of truth. That is, through the good news about Jesus. In other places where the New Testament refers to the word of truth, it clarifies that by calling it also the gospel of your salvation. So the word of truth that gives us new birth is a very specific word. It is not the truth that God exists, as important as that truth is. It's not the truth that God created the world, as important as that truth is. The truth that gives us new life is the truth that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. When you and I recognize that we're perishing because of our rebellion against God, when we recognize Jesus as God's only Son, and the only solution to our problem, when we come to see His death on the cross, not just as an act of love, but as an act of redeeming love, when we recognize his death was a substitutionary sacrifice, a death in our place to pay for our sin, 
when we put our faith in Jesus and that word of truth about Jesus, God gives us new birth. We genuinely begin a new life with the assurance that we're no longer in slavery to our deadly desires. In every trial, we can say no to those deadly desires. We can say yes to God's wisdom. In circumstances of poverty, we can learn to take pride in our high position in Christ instead of struggling for a high position in the eyes of this world. In circumstances of wealth, we can learn to take pride in God's grace to us instead of taking pride in the stuff we own or how impressed other people are with us. Do we all still have plenty of growing up to do? And those things as well as 101 other things? Yes, absolutely we do. But as we face the process of growing up, we don't face it with despair. We face it with hope. Because we are not what we used to be. Through the word of truth about Jesus, God has begun his new creation work in us. And he is at work. Not to tempt us and see us fail. He's at work to make us more like Jesus. And so we live our lives with these two perfect gifts from God. Wisdom for our trials and hope in his new creation power. Power that is already at work in us. That is God's word to us today. And we're going to respond with thanks to him for the eternal riches we have in Christ and for the price he paid to bring us those riches. So let's join together in singing, I will sing of the Lamb and I will glory in my Redeemer.
began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen. A sign shall be given a virgin will conceive a human baby bearing undiminished deity. The glory of the nations, a light for all to see. And hope for all who will embrace his warm reality. Glorious love. 